be seated. We uh, started a long time ago. We went into a series that talked about church vision and mission and, and went through that for eight weeks. And now we're in a series about distinctives. But let me build off of, just as we begin, let me build off of kind of that, that perspective or that the, the vision and mission of the church series. You know, I, I preached that series and I, I talked a lot about who we are striving to be as a church, um, but never define the church. In fact, as I use the word church, I assume there's a certain amount of understanding about it. And the reality is, is that that's probably why I heard a comment I did just this last week at a conference from a leader at, at uh, a conference I was attending. And I'm not trying to say anything derogatory about the, the leader at this church. I'm not trying to say anything bad about him. I'll prove to you that I'm not doing that as a common perspective. But he makes a comment from the front that is difficult to define the church, that there's really a di- it, it, it's just, man, we could talk about that all day. And, and if somebody would just come with a definition, that's, that's basically the context and the perspective he had. If somebody would just come up with a good definition for the church, he'd love it. And the truth is, is that is an extremely common perspective. In fact, in his book, um, Vintage Church, Mark Driscoll points out that this is something he's, he did a lot of research as he talked about and, or began to prepare for writing that book. He went and talked to pastors and leaders in the church. He, he looked for writings. And then the reality was, as he talked to people and he looked for things, there was a, a, um, an absence of people talking about what the church is. I mean, Honestly, if I were to ask the question and open up the floor, I think that most people in here, at least that have been here for a time, I don't know all of you, but I think most people that are here that have been here and that call this their church would have an understanding that the church is not a building, it's not an event, that it's the people. And one of the reasons we are able to recognize that is because we have no building to call our own. And so we're automatically, we kind of, we start with a, we start with a leg up on other people that, that move into churches that have their own buildings. Now, it's not to say buildings are bad. We're striving to get our own. It's a tool for ministry. It's a tool for mission. But it is not what defines a church. However, in our conversations, in our vocabulary, we talk about it as an event, as a place. You know, I'm going to go to church today. How many of you thought, I've got to get up and go to church tomorrow? Probably most people in the room. That's what we do. And it's, I'm not trying to condemn you for that. I'm not trying to say anything bad about that. But it demonstrates that we have a misconception in our minds that, are kind of, that we kind of grapple with in our culture. That we look at church as an event that takes place between a certain time on Sunday mornings. Or even if you, if you come to one of our community groups, maybe you consider that going to church. In our house, I hear people say, and I have said, I'm guilty of this myself, we got to go to church tonight. That's what we do on Wednesday night. We got it's a community group in a in a house across town has no connection, but but we go to this event that takes place, uh, and that's what we do. Or there's people like a friend of mine who he's not a believer. He he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, uh, not a follower, not a member of the church in any way. Doesn't have a desire to be. But I was in a conversation with him once, and he was talking about uh, another guy that was talking about becoming a member of a church here in town. And, and this guy was saying, and, and his perspective demonstrated, that he looked at the church from the outside as a social club. Like people go and they join the church kind of like they would join the Lions Club or the Shriners. Or, and, and so they, they have this list of rules and they have this list of things, but ultimately they pay dues to remain members. And so he had talked about, this guy's tithes and offerings and, and really referring to anybody that gives to the church as if we pay dues to remain members of the church. 
And that was his perspective, that it's a social club that you, that you jump in on and, and are involved in, and that's where you build relationship and things like that. But the reality is, is that totally misses the whole perspective of what the Scripture teaches us the church to be. And so today, as we jump into this, into this second distinctive, as we look at the distinctives that we are going to follow, it's my hope that I'll help you see and, and have a working definition for what the church is. In fact, we're going to strive to answer this question, what is the church? I mean, certainly you would say it's the people. I think you would agree with me on that. If you hadn't before I started talking, I think I've already probably said enough that you'd at least agree with me, at least in front of people, so that if somebody else heard you saying it, you wouldn't feel weird. But, but the reality is, is that um, from the Scripture, it's my hope and desire to, to, to build in you a working definition that we can use as we consider what the church is. And here's the reason it's important. How do we know if we're a healthy church if we don't have any understanding of what the church is to be? If we don't have an idea of what we're supposed to be, of what the Bible tells us the church is supposed to be, if we don't know that and understand it, how can we ever decide whether we're healthy or not? We really can't. You have to have a working definition. You have to have an understanding of what the church is to be to understand if you're, if you're walking in a, in a proper way. And so that's the idea and that's, that's the distinctive that we will strive to build today. In fact, I'm just going to answer the question for you now. And then we'll turn to Scripture. In fact, while I'm reading the definition, you're welcome to go ahead and get your Bibles. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen. But let me read this definition to you. The church is a community of believers that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ whose role is to know and make God known in the world through worship, ministry, and mission organized under the headship of Jesus Christ and those he calls to lead and equip his people. I think... I'm positive. I forgot to change the definition. Hear, hear this. The, whose role is to know and make God known in the world through worship, ministry, and mission. Organized under the headship of Jesus Christ and those he's called to lead and equip his people. And so the first point, there's three things in that definition that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what identifies us as a church, what makes us the church to begin with, the, the purpose or role of the church in the world, and then the the uh, the orientation or the the the, the uh, position of the church in creation, I guess is the way we'd say it. So the first point: the church is the children of God bought by the blood of Christ. The church is the children of God bought by the blood of Christ. Now, this, if you will, look at First Peter chapter one. We're going to start reading in verse seventeen. We'll read through verse nineteen. It says. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. All right. So here we see Peter is writing to a, a set of churches, a group of churches, there's about five that he names in the introduction that live in Asia Minor. That's about where Turkey and all of those places would be today. They, they live there. They, they, they suffer there. They are under persecution there because they are followers and believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, this church is, is suffered violently. They are likely part of the dispersion. Stephen was martyred. I don't know if you know the story. Acts chapter 7. Stephen's martyred for his faith, and immediately 
after the story of him being martyred and his death, it, it talks about that the gospel spreads and people, uh, Christians are scattered. And when they're dispersed, they bring the gospel with them. And the result of that is as they scatter, the gospel spreads. So this horrible event leads to gospel multiplication. And so it's this beautiful picture of God moving in spite of man's evil and working and bringing his truth to people. But these people live and breathe in extremely difficult situations. I mean, they, we don't even come close to understanding what they dealt with. If you've been here before, I've talked from First Peter before, and you've heard me talk about this, but the things that they dealt with were being impaled on spikes and being drip, dipped in tar after, and being burnt alive on those spikes as to be torches for the lights on the road at night. They were covered with animal skins and, and thrown into uh, arenas and, and just mauled by lions and, and wild animals. They were... They were killed constantly because they identified themselves as believers. But here, Peter is talking to them and he's kind of giving them direction and he's calling them to a certain, to a certain walk. In fact, the, the whole context of this passage, he's calling them to a holy walk, a distinct walk in spite of their circumstances to, to make themselves known in the world. But he says, if you call on him as father and immediately, immediately, you have a connect, an understanding. You have a, a distinction there. There, there. there should be something that catches your ear there. Because there's no religion in the world that has ever seen God as some uh, uh, a father that's close and a father that cares and a father that works for his children. You see, our faith, the faith that we believe in, the, 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 the perspective of the gospel says that we aren't just we aren't just a people of God, but we are children of God. If you call on Him as Father, then walk in a certain way. But then He goes on to say the reason that they can call on Him as Father is because they are bought or they're ransomed not by, not by anything that fades and not by anything that's going to cease to exist, but by the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the idea of being ransomed, it's, it, 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 it demonstrates that there's an exchange that takes place. Something happened so that you could call God Father. There, there was a, maybe not a financial transaction, but there was certainly a transaction. The larger teaching of Scripture tells us that we are condemned under God's wrath. And there is no way out. And that because of our rebellion in creation, because of the sin of Adam, we are all cursed with this and we are all under the wrath and we are all enslaved to it. And the traditions of our fathers and the, and the lineage of our life and the ancestry that we claim, none of that matters. We are under wrath. And that should just scare the pants off of us. I mean, it, it should scare us so bad to consider that the God who could call light into existence when there was nothing but darkness, when, when, when the God who could put the world in order when there was nothing there, when He could speak it all, everything that is around us, He could speak it into existence, that should frighten us. That God has a mighty wrath. And we're under it. But because of Jesus Christ, because of the work He's done on the cross, He has made a way and He has ransomed us. And so any of us that have come to faith, any of us that can call God Father, it is because Jesus Christ has paid the price that you can be bought out of the slavery, out of the condemnation that you were in and brought you to be a child of God. And that fear should give way to awe and honor and respect and love. 
You see, the church, it's the children of God. It's not just the people of God. In fact, I don't think, I don't think that's right on the screen either. It's the children of God. The children of God bought by the blood of Christ. We owe our very existence to Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the defining characteristic of the church. You can be here today and you, you don't have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and we hope that we attract and are able to connect with peoples who do not believe in Jesus Christ. You can come to our events. You can, you can come and be a part of the work that we do. You can serve in certain places in the church. We're not going to let you get up and preach probably because you won't know what to preach, but we're probably not going to let you lead a small group. But there's certainly things you can do, and we, we're going to encourage you to engage and look at what Christian life is about. But more than anything, we're going to strive to help you see the greatness and the bigness of our beautiful and amazing Creator and Savior. But you cannot be a member of the church if you're not bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's not my rule to be exclusive. I'm not striving to be exclusive. I'm striving to be true to the words of Scripture. I'm not trying to be hurtful to anyone. I'm trying to be obedient to my Savior. This is the defining characteristic. To be bought, to be saved, to be, to be redeemed by the work and, and, and power of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's pretty cool because as Peter writes this, he gives us actually a couple of perspectives. And, and really, as the Reformers dealt with this idea of what the church is, he's writing to a church that they kind of build this idea out of. They, he, they, they look at the Scriptures and they see these words being written to groups of people, particular groups of people, that apply to everyone. And so they're like, wow, well, you know what? We see the church in front of us. I, I, I'm a part of a church. And, and, they, and they recognize that just the, 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 the things that they've dealt with and the hierarchy that they've been under the, in the Roman Catholic Church is not exactly right. It's not biblical. And they're trying to understand what the church is in light of the truth of the gospel. And they're looking and they're saying, wait, we got church around us. And, and these letters that are written in the New Testament, these pastoral and epistles, they're, they're written to, to individual churches. Peter's letter is written to five churches. So, so there's got to be this bigger idea. There's got to be this greater thing. And the church is not just the children that's in this room. The church is the children globally. All the people that ever will be saved, have been saved, or will be, or have been, or will be saved. Let me, let me say it like that. Whoever saved today, whoever saved before, whoever's going to be saved, those people belong to the church. And that's this universal perspective. But how many of us can live and breathe in a place where everything is so high and lofty that we can't see it and touch it? None of us. We have to. We live in a physical world. We have small perspectives. We can just barely see past the nose on our face. I mean, it's the reality of it. And so the beauty of it is we see that that just doesn't contain all the people, but it speaks personally to this group of people. And so today, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you may not be a, an official member of this local church, but as a member of the body, you're welcomed into this local church. It's the children of God bought by the blood of Christ. That's our defining characteristic, whether you're thinking of it universally or whether you're thinking of it locally. Defining characteristic sets us apart from everyone else. And it's by that that we begin to recognize that we are a community of believers that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Number one. That's it. <clears throat> but then, okay, once you gather, is there, a, is there a particular perspective or is there something that God wants us to do? Now, my hope is, is that because we spent so much time on it in the last series, that the people in our church 
could answer this question. But just in case, I'm going to teach it to you from another perspective. And, and if you didn't get it before, hopefully, hopefully you get it now. If you're visiting with us today, um, my hope is, is that you'll, you'll be challenged with it. But the next point I'm going to, I'm going to show to you in, in Peter is that the church is the priesthood of believers built together by God to live together in worship. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That's a verse that describes Jesus. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, men rejected Jesus, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Jesus was chosen by God. He was, it was determined before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come, put on flesh, dwell among us, die on the cross, rise again, and provide for us eternal life. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Being saved by Jesus, that's the primary point of entry. That's what sets us apart from everyone else. That's As we gather, we're not just a social club. We're not just an event. We are a people bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then he calls us to act and do and be uh, and move in a certain direction. And it says here in Peter, he says, as you come to him, the living stone, you like living stones. It's giving a picture of reflection. It's giving a picture that that you begin to follow his example and that that Jesus is the source. But then you reflect him in, in the world and you live and follow his example. You like living stones are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? That sounds, man, I, that's beyond me, right? I mean, what does it mean to offer spiritual sacrifices? What does it mean to, to be a holy priesthood? The priesthood in the, Jerusalem, in the Jewish culture, which primarily is who Peter's writing to, he's writing to the Jews that were dispersed. The Jews were the ones that were a liaison between the people in Jerusalem and God. And Peter's making a distinction here, and he's saying, hey, it's not just the priests now, but all believers who have come. You're not just children of God. You are a priesthood, which means that you and I, as members of the body of Christ, have authority to stand in a place where all the Jewish priests would have stood before and offer up spiritual sacrifices. We don't offer physical sacrifices anymore. That's not killing lambs and spilling blood and, and doing that. That's all in Jesus but we offer spiritual sacrifices. So now you and I don't need a priest to stand between us and God to offer up acts of worship or honor. You and I can stand before God. We have been given authority to be in a place where we stand before the Most High and offer up spiritual sacrifices because we are a holy priesthood. And now we are a liaison between God and the world. And it's our job to ensure that the world begins to, comes to know him. Or it's our job to, to make sure that we connect with the world, that we can see them connect with God. It doesn't mean that we'll get them saved. It doesn't mean that, that we'll make any difference. God has to do that work. But it is our job. It is our responsibility. Well, then what's a spiritual sacrifice? What do we do? Now, you, I've, I've talked to you about priesthood. I've talked to you about what that means. What does it mean to offer a spiritual sacrifice? Well, a spiritual sacrifice is real, really simple. It's a physical act with a spiritual implication. For example, just a minute ago, we sang some songs. Physical act. How many of you thought about God and how big he was and how amazing he is as we sang? Bunch of nodding heads. That's a, that's a, that's a spiritual sacrifice. 
That's that's a physical act with a spiritual implication. How many of you spend time reading your Bibles and thinking about and striving to know God? That's a spiritual sacrifice. How many of you serve in the church? How many of you give time to make sure that the church is is being served and equipped and, and made whole? That's a spiritual sacrifice. How many of you give money to the church to ensure that the mission of God is, is, is maintained and the mission of God is, is, is moved forward? That's a spiritual sacrifice. Anything done, anything done, no matter how big, no matter how small, you know, it could be extravagant, it could be tiny. Anything we do in a physical way with a spiritual perspective to honor our God is a spiritual sacrifice. And in quite, quite frankly, the thing we call it in this church, and maybe you call it this in your church if you're visiting with us, is Worship. Worship. So we, as a holy priesthood, have all authority to stand boldly before the throne of God and proclaim His goodness and worship Him. Not just with our words, but with our actions, with our talents, with our treasures. We have authority to do that. And that happens and is acceptable because of Jesus Christ. In fact... There's plenty of good social clubs out there, right? I mean, the Lions Club. I, I appreciate the Lions Club. I've got some friends that are in the Lions Club, and, and they do a lot of good things. They raise money and give it away, and they, raise, they bring in glasses and give them to children who couldn't have glasses. I mean, they do some good things. But, you know, not once do they ever consider Jesus Christ. In all of their organizational information, the people that are there, not all of them are believers. They do not depend on Jesus Christ. And so all of those works are human-based and in human effort. And there's no spiritual sacrifice there because there's only a physical action. There's no spiritual implication. There's no spiritual perspective. You could get together with your friends outside of, outside of church, outside of a, a group of believers, and you could sit and you could have all the theological conversations you wanted. And you could talk all about the Bible as much as you wanted. But if you didn't trust in Jesus Christ to make that work acceptable, no matter how good it seemed, it's still filthy to God. Our good works are only ever acceptable to God when they come through and have been cleansed by the work of Jesus Christ. We learn that as we work through Philippians. It's like it's like standing before God and offering up good works that are based on just what we do and not through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's like handing up bags of trash and saying, God, I got these for you. I mean, it doesn't work. Or there's plenty of groups that don't do good things and don't believe in Jesus Christ, but they get together all the time. And they have gatherings and they have functions and they have events. But they are not a church. Because they don't gather under the power and, and, and under the name of Jesus Christ. So the defining characteristic is Jesus Christ. The defining movement is, is so far as we've seen it, is worship and us as a priesthood of believers coming together as ministers of the gospel and offering up spiritual sacrifices, offering up our worship to God. But it's not just about us getting together and worshiping. In fact, if you just skip down to verse 9, we see that the church is the possession of God given the purpose of proclaiming His excellencies. It says in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Man, there's so much beauty there. 
I don't have time to preach on it. I could preach on that for about three weeks, but I don't have... But just listen to it. This is God's perspective of His people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into light. Man, it's so beautiful and so rich. It speaks of our identity in Christ. It speaks of, of how He now sees us as having been redeemed from the futile way of our fathers, the, the, the old ways and being brought out of slavery. This is how He now sees us. He looks at us in this way. But it demonstrates to us that another distinctive of the church is not that we are just to stand in worship and stand proclaiming His goodness to Him, but we're to stand. The word proclaim means to make, make sure that it's spoken out. Make sure that others hear it. So that we stand in a place in the world so that others can hear the beauty and the majesty and the, and the, and the preciousness of God's grace and the amazingness of His mercy and the power of His love. And even some of those difficult things to talk about, the, 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 the wrath, so, so that people understand that it is justified. And here's the thing about wrath. Is, it's so difficult to talk about, but, but God's wrath is so real because His love is so powerful. God wouldn't be angry at all. He would have no anger if He didn't love His people. He didn't, if He didn't love His creation. They need to hear about His justice and that we don't measure up. And that needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be proclaimed that He is excellent enough that He saw past our weaknesses. He saw into our hearts and knew us but loved us and provided us a way through Jesus Christ. And He wants us to proclaim that. He wants it preached from the mountaintops. He wants us speaking about it to our children. You heard me read that at the baptism. He wants us talking about it to the people we work with. He wants us talking about it in, in, the, in our neighborhoods where we live. To be an active part of our life so that it's the thing that, that motivates our conversations that we proclaim His excellencies. You know, here just a minute ago, we sang a song. And a lot of people, I've heard people push back on songs like this because it focuses on man and about how God loves us. Oh, how He loves us. You know, I'm, I'm totally ruined the rhythm of that. That's just me and my musical ability. I'm trying not to impress you too much. But, man, I mean, speaking about the great love of God for His people brings great glory to the God who loves us. That song may say a lot about man, but it says more about God. Because God is big enough. God is amazing enough. God, God is compassionate enough to love us, not just in word, but in deed, with an active, sacrificial love that, that moves us from darkness to light. And if you've been moved from darkness to light, you see the difference. You know and you want to proclaim it. It's a distinctive of the church. And so that second point, it's, it's in these two points that we put together that, that we're to know God through worship and ministry and, and mission and to make God known. That's what the church is to be about. And if we are doing any other thing, for example, we can have all the Easter egg hunts we want. But if it's not with an intention to make God known and just get word out about our church and so we can grow big because it's going to stroke the pastor's ego, then there's no reason to have an Easter egg hunt because that's about us. 
I'm not against church growth, don't hear me saying that. If we're striving to grow the church big so that more people hear the gospel, so that more people's lives are changed, so that God is glorified greater, that's a great reason to grow the church. In fact, the church needs to grow because that needs to be demonstrated through our actions that we're out there proclaiming His excellencies. If we're a body of believers and we are not once proclaiming His excellencies outside the body, then we are not a healthy church. If we're, a, if we're a, a body of believers and yet not one person in here is being equipped for the ministry or not one person in here is being served by the others in the church, not one person in here is being grown, we are not a healthy church. If we're a body of believers that come together every week, but we not, not, not once do we ever offer up an, uh, an idea or a perspective or turn our focus on the God that has saved us, that He is honored and adored, and that the love that we have for Him becomes evident, and that our lives don't, don't depict a, a lifestyle of worship, then we are not a healthy church. We need to rethink these things, but this is why we need to know. This is why we need to hear it. This is why we need to have a definition of the church so that we can strive to be a healthy church. Not so that, oh, Seth gave us a great vision statement, worship and lead others to worship God. I'm going to live for that. Why? Because worshiping and leading others to worship is what a healthy church does. And that's not me saying that. That's God's Word saying that. Show, I, I show you that. It, it's our responsibility now to respond to it. This letter that Peter's writing, he, this is command after command after command being, being just riddled with full, it's full of doctrine, but command after command after command, this is who we are to be. This is the purpose we are to live for if we're going to be a healthy church. If the church at large universally is not doing these things, it is unhealthy. If the church locally as a single community of believers is not doing these things, it is not healthy. It's important we understand it. And then the third point I want you to see that I think defines the church. First Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. The church is the flock of God under the leadership and authority of Jesus, our great shepherd. It's huge, huge, especially today. Because here's what's happening today is, and it's not, it's kind of fading, but it's still, it's still prevalent. It's still something that happens. But, but about three or four years ago, it was extremely prevalent that guys were struggling with the idea of what church was. And so they were getting together with their buddies in a, in a, in a brewery and just hanging out and talking theology and drinking beer and talking theology and saying, Oh, we're a church. Now, in our perspective, it's okay to go and have a drink. And talk theology with your buddies at, at, at the brewery. I'm not going to come down too hard. And if I'm he hearing about you getting drunk and talking theology, I'm going to hammer you for getting drunk and talking theology because you're probably not talking good theology at that point. Well, and you're not, you shouldn't be getting drunk either, but talking bad theology is bad too. So, But the reality is, is that that's not a church. It could be an expression of what happens with a church. It could be, it's, it's fine for you to get together with your buddies and your friends and sit in a house or sit someplace at a restaurant and just go and talk and, and just deal with issues in the Bible and talk to one another about what's going on in your life. That is a great expression of what happens in the community of the church. It's a good thing. That's the worship and leading others to worship part. That's the, the worshiping and offering spiritual sacrifices part. But you can't call that little group of people a church. Because there's a there's an important piece of the of the puzzle missing. 
And that piece of the puzzle is the authority of Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. Because Jesus Christ, in his authority, calls certain people in the church to serve the church by leading the church. And he gives them authority to act for the interests of the church. But listen, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, 24-25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Man, he took the price. He paid the price for us. He stood in our place that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You're a part of the church because Jesus Christ has healed you. He's redeemed you. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now think of the word shepherd and overseer. Jesus is your provider. He's your protector. He's your manager. He's your leader. He's your example. He's the one who speaks and you're to respond and follow. That's what those words mean to us. He is our ultimate authority. He is the one who, who stands over the church and commands it to go. He's the one who stands over the church and decides its purpose. He's the one who gave his life for the church that it might exist. But how did he get this message to the church? These words weren't spoken by Jesus, but they were written with his authority. And they're empowered by the Holy Spirit by, by, through a man named Peter. And Peter is one of the original leaders and apostles of the church, the, the, one, of the, one of the people who, who, who saw Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who learned from Jesus for three years before Jesus is killed and then resurrected. One, a, a, a man who saw the dead Jesus and then saw the living Jesus, whose life was transformed not just in the time that he was taught, but in experiencing and meeting the risen Lord face to face, eye to eye, being able to put his hands on him and being able to sit with him and watch him eat and listening to him pray over him. And at one point, it talks about that Jesus in His risen form breathes on them. Man, it's beautiful. But this man, Peter, given authority to write these words. I can't write Scripture, but I stand in line with a group of men who have been called out by God to lead the church. And you see that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter addresses the elders, the people that, as he knows, his ministry is going to end and, and he can't be in every church, in every place. He hands off that leadership and that ministry and that authority and he passes it on. And he tells the elders in the church how to lead and serve the people as they lead. Paul, in his writings, talks about in Ephesians 4.11 and there's other places he points to it, but in Ephesians 4.11 he says, that God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers for the equipping of the church so that it can do ministry and so that it can grow up and be mature. And so these leaders of the church are servants of the church as they lead and as they equip the church to be the priesthood of believers. And so if you're a group of people and you're hanging out in a, in, in a house and you're thinking, oh, we're the church and you don't have any authority over you called and equipped uh, uh, called and qualified authority over you, you are not a church. A church must be formed and authority must be demonstrated. And I know that's a difficult thing because honestly, I like to be my own boss too. I like to do what I think is right and what and I don't like to be challenged. Maybe that's why I strive to be an elder. I don't know. 
But the reality is, is in today's culture, it's common for most of us. Our whole government's set up on this idea that we get what we want. And I'm not, I'm not bashing democracy. I appreciate it. But the whole thing is, hey, I want what I want, so I'm going to go and cast my vote and hope I get it. Our consumeristic economy, it's all driven towards me getting what I want. Commercials tell me I deserve it. Have you had a break today? You deserve it. But the reality is we need authority. In the Godhead, we see authority. The Father commanding the Son, the Son over the Spirit. The Spirit comes, and Jesus talks about the Spirit coming, and, and, and He says the Spirit's not going to do what He wants to do. He's going to do what He's been told to do. He's going to say the things and teach the things that He's been given to teach. He's going to lead you into truth, but He is submissive to the Father and the Son. And you see authority, and, and that authority comes down, and it comes to God's people. And so we have authority to stand before God and worship Him. We have authority to do ministry. We have authority to put leadership in place. We have authority uh, as the people of God to act and, and, to, and to proclaim His goodness and to worship Him. And then there's some who have been given the authority to lead under the headship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our ultimate authority. These three things... Are, are distinctives of the church. And without them, you don't have the church. You can be a lot of things and not be the church. This is what the church is. The church is a community of believers that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ whose role is to know and make God known in the world through worship, ministry, and mission organized under the headship of Jesus Christ and those He calls to lead and equip His people. That's a church. And because we know from the Bible what a church is and what the church is to look like, we can strive to be a healthy, growing church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for doing Your work through Your Son, Jesus Christ, for providing us so much, for giving us the gift of salvation, the hope of eternal life, the, the inheritance we have to look forward to. But God, thank You for not just leaving that for some eternal thought or some high and lofty thought that's in the distance, but putting us among Your people and putting us together as a spiritual house that we might stand in this together, that we might partner in this, that we might be, be owners of this, that we together might recognize Your beauty and respond to it in worship. That we then would proclaim Your excellencies to the people around us that they could see and know and experience Your goodness and Your grace. God, that You would show us the places that we are rebelling against You and that You would call us to submission under Your authority. That, that just like that song we sang, Lord, that, that we would recognize the wind that bends us over the, as Your grace and Your mercy and Your love. It's not harmful to us, but it's in our best interest. God, we love You for that. We're thankful for that. But I know that we struggle with it as well. God, help us. Strengthen us for this walk. I pray, God, that if there is a person here or people here today that, God, that are outside the church because they haven't come to faith in Christ, because they haven't believed in Your Son as the way, that You would convict them through the Spirit now and that You would just challenge them to believe, to trust in You. God, for those of us that are believers and are part of this church, I pray, God, that You would 
that you would build in us a desire to be a part, not just of the universal church, but a local church that we might stand together fulfilling the purposes that you've given us to fulfill. We love you and we thank you. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.